Jerry Ratcliffe again with Reducing Crime, a podcast featuring influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. So Dennis O'Connor has been in British policing for over 50 years and has been at the centre of a number of significant high-profile reviews. We discuss police careerists, the growth of oversight regimes, and the need for a plan to win. Find out more in this episode at reducingcrime.com and on Twitter at underscore reducingcrime. Hi. Before I get to this episode, I'd like to quickly tell you there are still a few seats available for a three-day training program I'm facilitating in September 2019. From the 24th to the 26th, I'll be running a Police Commander's Crime Reduction course in beautiful downtown Philadelphia. This course is ideally suited to mid-level police command staff and senior analysts, and is the only authorized training program accompanying the book Reducing Crime, a Companion for Police Leaders. Details can be found on the web at reducingcrime.com events. Sir Dennis O'Connor has been a stalwart of British policing since the 1960s. He started as a copper with the Metropolitan Police in East London, rising to assistant commissioner where he led the development of strategy following the Stephen Lawrence inquiry. He took over as chief constable of Surrey Police in 2000, and a few years later joined Her Majesty's Inspectors of Constabulary. In 1996, Sir Dennis was awarded the Queen's Police Medal, and he was knighted by the Queen in 2010 for his services to policing. He has led numerous high-profile inquiries, had leading roles in the Association of Chief Police Officers and piloted the National Reassurance Policing Programme, the precursor to neighbourhood policing. Sir Dennis spent a number of years as an independent director of the board of the College of Policing and is now a fellow at the Institute of Criminology at Cambridge University. I chatted with Dennis over coffee at the 2019 International Evidence-Based Policing Conference at Cambridge University. We talk about the dangers of leaders that are careerists, the fallout from a counter-terrorism incident that went wrong, the lack of political support for police, schoolboy football, and the need for a policing story to fuel a plan to win. We also lament the loss of the East End of London's code around violence at weddings. Yeah, that used to be a thing. How long have you been in, involved in policing now? 50 years, more than 50 years. More than 50 years. Bloody hell. You and Chuck Ramsey are the only people I know who have been in, involved and still involved in the job. 50 years. It's a reduced involvement now, but you know, I, I see quite a lot of what's going on. Even though it's a reduced, and you say it's a reduced involvement, it doesn't look that way, because you're marking theses here at Cambridge. I mark theses, and you know, last night we saw the commissioner, I know Cresswell, we're caught up in the Lawrence inquiry, for example, so I do know, you know quite a few of the people in the business. So yes, I'm involved, but I, I'm one step removed. Which, are, in, in some ways, if you're a, a mission person, you'd like to be right in there. You're a hands-on guy, aren't you? Mission people are hands-on. Are there any other type in policing? Oh, I think there's a mix. I think potentially, uh, not, not saying because it's me, potentially mission people are the people that are going to break the case. They're going to literally crawl over broken glass and they will get there. And they're great. The thing is you have to care for them because because they care a lot, they can absorb too much pain and, and the, the police service can put too much on them. And they don't end up quite like 
Hieronymus Bosch, you know, or something like this, all, all with terrible hang-ups and in a terrible state, but they are susceptible to making themselves ill almost because they care so much about the results. It makes for great television drama, though, doesn't it? Well, it does because, you they're, know... They're always pained, aren't they, in some fashion? Pained and flawed and flashbacks and all that sort of stuff. That said, some of those people have been the very best people I've worked with, the people who always get a result on homicide, the people who, in counter-terrorist and other roles, work hours that are almost impossible to imagine. But not everybody is like that. And if, if we just had those people, I think we'd all go nuts because they, they are so intense. So we do have people who are less intense who turn up for work, do a, a bit of a good job and go home. And then we have, do have some people who don't care. They're dangerous in police because if you don't care in the police, you really are in the wrong business. If you can't empathize, even with your own colleagues, let alone with the public. So I think it's a mix. I think that's a great way of putting it. I mean, I, I joined the police cadets 35 years ago today. Mm. And, you know, over that time, I think it's the people that don't seem to give a shit. Mm. Are the people that have felt, have felt like they're the most destructive. Yeah. Because uh, what, what are you doing here? Yeah, my greatest concern in, in senior or other roles is when those individuals become senior. And if they're senior and just careerists, they're for their, their own glory. And they're dealing with politicians who don't care. And there are quite a few politicians who really don't care that much about issues without naming names. <laughs> now you have a toxic combination with the people who work for them because you don't join the police to get rich. You join to be in, at least in part for a mission that sort of, it, I mean, it's a mission to, literally to die for. And if you can't be inspired by the people, that they're good people that you're working for, it's a real problem. And it's been a problem in the UK in the last few years because I don't think a lot of police officers think that some of these people care very much and I think they're right. Because they won't take risks and because they won't support the troops? Um, I think there's an awful lot of pressures in the UK because the way it's regulated to take great care with risks you do take um, because it it's very likely to get exposed and people do take risks. I mean Cressida Dick, the commissioner who was here last night, she dealt with one of the most difficult things where, where things did not go well to Demenzi's case in London after terrorism and she survived, lived to, to what, tell the tale. Was she was supported by the then commissioner. What was her role in that? Her role, she was the commander who, sorry let me reverse that, they were looking for a suspect. There was one particular suspect that was adrift from the terrorist incident on the 22nd of July 2005. They were looking for this individual. They were looking at a block of flats and Demenzi's emerged and he on first Blanche looked very like the suspect. The visual technology they had was not good enough at the time. People yeah. trying to do a hard job. Have to make an instant decision. They had to make an instant decision and they thought on balance this is probably him and they followed him and it all went all the way down into the London tube where he had a bag, he'd been looking backwards and messing about. They read lots of things into this confirmation bias you see what you expect to see exactly and come at a moment on the tube where, where he starts to undo everything and they make a decision I think he's going to do it <laughs> and they shoot him and she's in command on the whole process through that now she to be fair did say stop him stop him stop him before he got to the tube but it was he was just slightly too far ahead and too far on they didn't want to start shooting with other members of the public around yeah you can imagine what happened when they found that, you know, they had got the wrong person. I can't imagine she, she being was anybody in, involved. Well, I, I think the, the technical phrase for it is shitstorm. She was in a shitstorm 
and I remember seeing her during this period and she was personally very resilient. Most people, a lot of people, because of the media were descended on her like wolves. She didn't fall to, she didn't let them see her bleeding, as it were. Yeah. And her management, and then commissioner and others, supported her and the subsequent commissioner and promoted her. And you can imagine, I mean, for some people, this was complete anathema. But with everything she had and all the information she had, you know, they were doing the best they could in an imperfect, approximate world, not an exact world mm -hmm. that everybody wants. Why I find that interesting is because that seems like one of the things we've lost. We seem to have lost the capacity to appreciate that people can, good people can make honest mistakes. Mm. That seems to have been lost in the last few years at some point. It's, it's lost here. I mean, the degree of scrutiny now of officers is so intense. They have an independent complaints body. If somebody dies following contact with the police, the police officer is almost immediately interviewed. Mm -hmm. And the interview is not sort of a friendly or casual interview. They can be almost put in position of being a suspect almost immediately. Yeah. And we have an inspectorate that is more resourced than it's ever been. Its resource has been increased by 77%, whilst policing has actually reduced by more than 20%. So actually, the degree of control around the police in the UK has increased enormously. That's a single thing uh, uh, over the last few years that gets ignored. So the complaint system has increased 70%? The inspection process by the Her Majesty's Inspector of Constabulary has increased by 77%. Even the while policing is... It, it reduced by more than 20%. So it's a kind of micromanagement at every level almost? It is. You could say it, it, it's a belief that you can make things better by controlling everything, every move. You can have guidelines for everything. You can have a standard for everything. And at times it feels like there's an expectation that the standard will be one of excellence across so many different things the police do. Now that's not realistic. So who's bearing the brunt of this? Is it mid-level? Is it frontline supervisors who are struggling the hardest? Is it the leadership who are struggling the hardest? Who's? I think they all have their own struggles. The front line, it has reached a point, and, and we get quite close to it every so often, where people do not want to be firearms officers even though they shoot hardly anybody here, because if there's an incident and shots are fired, they're immediately, there's an immediate investigation. Right. And, you know, they're separated from their weapons, separated from their colleagues, and then the process can take a, quite that, a long time. That can, make you, that can make you feel guilty before anything has even taken place. Indeed. There's been a, quite a chilling effect on some people taking roles like firearms or undercover officers or these edgy roles where you're very exposed because yep. they know that if something happens there's a very very strong chance they'll be investigated and the management cannot as it were save them in the sense of, of insulate them from it. Is it because they think that the management don't want to save them because they're careerists or because the management are unable to by circumstances? I think the management are unable to but, but I, I'm not sure the officers on the frontline officers understand that they don't understand all these structures and all their ramifications and the constraints around them. They just know that they're under investigation, there's a lot of trouble and there's not that many people around to help them. And the people who tend to go for these roles are people who are pretty good in what they do, so they feel it. And of course they have a wide circle so the word goes out about these jobs. Now so far they are still managing to get people to it 
but it's become so hard that they have had to kind of reach out and do try to do a lot of reassurance around firearms roles, even though there's very limited proportion of the British police are armed, a very, very small proportion, but just to get them to stand up has been quite an, an issue. And is this a change that has taken place? I mean, you, you, you have a capacity to look back over a career that started in the 60s. You started in the old H district, didn't you? Yes, East End of London. Me, you and me both. Yeah. Except for 20 years in between us, I think. Yeah, Millwall Docks, Limehouse. Yes, me too. I was posted to Limehouse Section House when I first arrived in London. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, H District. Limehouse, I'm falling under your spell. <laughs> what a place. And at that point, it became a little too noisy in the cafe. So we relocated to a bench outside to enjoy the brief half an hour that constitutes the entirety of a British summer. Yeah, so, where were we? Is this the worst it's ever been? I mean, you had the chance of looking back it's 50 years. You joined the job in the 60s? Yeah, end of the 60s. Yeah. In the old H district. Where the, the guy who, when I turned up on duty, wearing this ridiculous helmet, was almost down around my chin, it was so big. And with all these huge, tall, strong men who'd all been in the war and other things. And uh, when, when I said my number, he said, speak up, lad, I can't hear you under that helmet. <laughs> And uh, there was kind of almost an attitude, uh, wash that by and bring him to my tent. I mean, it, it, I was so young compared to everybody else there. It was a, a, an environment full of dockers. The pubs opened at six o'clock in the morning. And we should say this is Limehouse in the East End of London. Yeah, now, it, now it, Canary Wharf where everybody makes millions and millions. And this was the old docks. I remember it just before then. So because I, I went to Limehouse as well in yeah. 85. And it was just before all this growth. Yeah. And it was still East End finished. Twilight. The twilight of the docks. That's right. It was a twilight of the docks. and I think It I still looked like the long Good Friday, though. It did. And, and though, generally speaking, wasn't a weekend when there wasn't a good wedding and a lot of violence or the use of shotguns or machetes because, you know, there was a lot of restaurants around there. And we took it in our stride, but there was a kind of a code that that violence would not be used, that extreme violence on the police. That was the code. That was, it. That was understood between all the parties. So they would have their weddings, they'd have their funerals, they'd have their fights. We would turn up to mop up. But generally speaking, if rules were followed, the police would stay standing. But the big thing about it then was, I think that there was a, a, mo a more benign regard for the police in general, in the media, and from government. It didn't last very long. And no, and that, over those 50 years, has changed dramatically. But it was also the twilight, as I said to you, of the whole Peel approach to on-the-street crime prevention. So we'll come back to that in a second. Very different types of coppers. I mean, you talk about big blokes who were in the war. They are big guys who've been in the war. They were physically very able. They were not, generally speaking, men of lots of words. There was a bit of a crazy mix. I mean, there was a couple of public school boys. There were these guys from the war. And then there's a few chances, as they say, like myself, who wondered, you know, people wondered what the hell we were doing there. So that was a mix. Policing's good like that. You do get good mix of people. Those big guys who didn't say very much, they must have fitted in fine just down in the East End docks. They did, and they were the guys who drove the area cars. They were the sort of the fast response drivers. They were the ones who effectively exercised control when the sergeants were not around. There were men who could command. The moral authority of the shift. They were held in high regard. You know, there's the idea of economy of regard for people. These guys were high in that economy. Mm -hmm. And if they attended an incident, 
and there were a lot of other people milling around. If they took a view, we're going to settle this down, it would be settled down. If they decided it wasn't manageable in that way, it wouldn't. And pretty much really regardless of what the sergeant or inspectors would say, that's how it worked. So they, they kind of, almost like NCOs in the military, they kind of managed the situation. But the dockers happening. themselves probably had been through the war as well, so they shared that bond together. There was a lot of, you know, what they call in England working class guys. And so they, they came from some of the same places. They'd done some of the same things. And they had a measure of respect for one another, even when they were attending weddings where there had been violence or when they people were being lifted because they were taking stuff out of the docks in vans and trucks and any other way they could manage. Prolific, I have to say. If you spent a bit of time around there, even if you had not read Sherlock Holmes, you could not fail to make arrests. <laughs> a phenomenal number. So when did that all start to change? I mean, well, you, ta- you talked about that sort of frontline Pelian well, I, I see. So I, I'm preventions. A, I'm unusual because I only do a couple of years and I go off to university and the only reason I come back is because we get a new commissioner in the Met who says he's going to sort things out and some of the corruption which was evident, a bit of it was evident to me in the East End guy called Robert Mark. So I come back in the mid-70s, 74, 75. And when I come back, I notice that, first of all, some of the cops around me have got long hair. Disgraceful. Dreadful. It was the 70s, though. It was the 70s, you know, and of course the police weren't part, really, of the 60s loving. They kind of missed out on that, but they were kind (laughs) of having... I'm sure some of them gave it a go. (laughs) I'm sure they did, but they just didn't tell everybody else. But uh, by the mid-70s, you know, some of them obviously felt... Do you want to share some experiences now? um, I haven't had enough to drink. uh, (laughs) No, by the mid-70s, that generation, because you you look at it now and think about it, it's 45 they finish. So by the mid-70s, you know, they've done their time. And at a sweep, they're gone. All the guys that were in the Second World War? Yeah, pretty much nearly all gone. It's dramatically different. So I, I get put through the whole training thing again. Blimey. Yeah, the whole thing. It seems unnecessary. The deal was they made me class captain so that I didn't say what a load of nonsense some of it was. And so we had that deal, but I had to do the whole 16 weeks again. And I get out and I, I get one year's probation, even though I got an excellent thing oh, before. And I'm now a graduate entrant, so, but never mind. I turn up at this police station it's six o'clock in the morning, waiting to go out, and I'm ready to go. I'm, I've been thinking about it. I'm back. Villains, get ready. Here I am. Six o'clock passes, half six passes, seven o'clock. Eight o'clock in the morning, this guy who's supposed to be taking me out says, no, I've got to go now and take the papers over to the court. En route, I said, Are we, can we do some stop and search or something? He said, oh, I've got to get back for breakfast. A call comes out, and very reluctantly, I just grabbed the thing. Like, We're on it. We'll do it. We're in the van. And we end up doing some firearms thing in some buildings and then he's hacked off at me because he's not having breakfast. And I thought, something has slipped a bit here. Now, I know this is just a little story, but they went through a huge period then of mm-hmm. uncertainty. The police were run down a bit. It became hugely reactive. So we went from Pelion patrols. When I'd first came in, if anything happened overnight, that was really bad. If anything happened and I'd missed it, that was pretty much nearly fatal. You were just going to get absolutely excoriated in front of everybody right we went from that to people cruising around in cars and pretty much deciding what they were going to do that that was a transition and it wasn't just in this little backwater in this was in Lewisham in London South London so quite a transition and I think the police went into this very reactive thing in the 70s and 80s 
and you know the story there, crime went up. And they seem to me, and it's still suffering from this, they went from having a way of doing direct crime control to doing reactive stuff and to being a bit uncertain, really, beyond doing that reactive stuff and being busy about quite what the ultimate goal was. The system around them just wasn't strong enough to kind of pull them into a kind of an organisational way. We're trying to win what we're doing by doing this. That's what I remember from the 80s through yeah. the 80s. It, just, it felt like there was kind of a bunker mentality. There was everybody in the police canteen was all right and everybody else outside was a bit of a shitbag. It was a bit of them and us. Um, people did get brought in and if you're a sergeant, I was, and then so on, you know, they would put people in the slammer and they'd leave them there to marinate, percolate for hours, sometimes days because the controls were lax, but various things went wrong, so more controls started being imposed, uh, you know, various rules, the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, and then gradually the upgrading of the complaints investigation against the police and the upgrading of the inspection of the police. And what's absolutely missing the police is a, two things. One is a good narrative about how they're going to win. You don't feel there's a plan? Cops like the military need a plan to win. They may not be that convinced about the plan, but at least they need to know there is some kind of plan. <laughs> if you've ever been in a big operation, I've been on a lot, you cannot stand up on the canteen table and say, well, I'm glad we're all here to get today and we're going to do our best. <laughs> You'll have to have a plan, OK? Prussian general in uh, Hel Helmuth von Molke in 1880 said, no plan survives contact with the enemy. But you know what? At least he had a plan. He did. It's uh, a good start, right? Yeah, he did. And he could always say, as he died, that was the plan. Um, <laughs> So, so there, there was an absence of a plan, and then I think there was increasingly an absence of high-profile political support. And I don't mean unthinking support, you know, I think the cops are great, whatever they do. I'm talking about solid people who thought it through, who valued what the police did. And my sense is it became politicised in the UK. You know, some politicians did value the police, but we, we, the police lacked what we call in the trade third-party endorsement by senior players and senior media became a punching bag they did and of course and when they by the time they took on news international around everything that happened about press relations it, you know they, they made the newsprint strike in the 19 late 1980s in, the in that case they were i suppose seen as friends of publishing management but by 2012, when they had that business about leaking and the press people penetrating police investigations to find out what was happening about murders, and there was a public inquiry about it, that, of course, made enemies with the press. So now they had, didn't have political support. They had reduction in their, the money out allocated them because of the financial crisis. And they had the press, not their pals. Yeah. Looking at the situation now from you know, your perspective over the last 50 years, is there a clear path forward? I think there is a path forward, and it needs a big grown-up conversation. That's not government speciality. No. If you wait for the government to do that, good luck. What we do have here is we will have something called the National Police Chief Constables Council. So the chiefs meet regularly, and I do think it would be possible for them to put together a narrative. You need a story to have a plan to win. And I think the kind of government line has been, you know, two things really. Crime is down and reform is working. That was their line from 2010. That didn't survive contact with the enemy for very long. You just have to look at the numbers to see that that's not exactly working out. Crime's been on the increase in the UK for the last two or three years now? 
three years, three years. and violent crime in particular is being rocketing in, in some of our cities. And not to mention a whole swathe of cybercrime about which the police are exercising virtually no control not, and almost no investigation. And of course, like the states, we have terrorism and everything else. I think the government, the politicians, took the view it is a bit like after the Berlin Wall, this is the end of crime. Crime, you know, the Western society is maturing and people are changing and they don't have fights at funerals and weddings anymore. Well, they do. <laughs> and it's all cool and we can have, tell any story we like and we can take money out of the police. Well, it turns out they're wrong. We need to reflect on that. I do not think protecting people, giving people's tolerances now and expectations of protection of police, I don't think that job's going to get easier. I think it's going to get harder. So what's, what does a developing a narrative and a plan look like? It looks like this. At first, point one is I think the police should tell a story that people can understand about the choices they have to make every day because they would like, most of them, to do everything well. But when you have 98 different lines of business, if you look at a police command and control system, yeah. from antisocial behaviour through missing persons to terrorism, not everything is going to be done excellently. And the present government's assumption is that despite taking money out, I think in a way they've expected that everything can happen at this standard. That is ridiculous. It, it can't happen in any business and it certainly can't happen to police. So I think there needs to be a story that we have to make these choices now every day and we regret them, but we, we're putting it in front of you because you, the body politic, might want to change that. You might want to change the priorities. You might want to put a lot more money in. These are the choices we'd like to be making in five or ten years' time. But to do that, we need this kind of training, we need this kind of infrastructure, and frankly, we need this support about having priorities. Yeah. Because there is no business in the world, including the military, that can operate without priorities. It strikes me that there are two pieces to this that are going to need to be essential. It's the spreading of the message, because I'm on Twitter, and I just see two We worlds. all have our problems in Yeah, life. I know, right? <laughs> I follow some of left-wing academia, yep. whose perception of policing is completely at odds with the police Twitter that I follow, yep. which is good men and women, good blokes going out there, and yeah, guys and girls heading out there, doing a hell of a good job, not getting any refreshment breaks, doing overtime every single day just to try and keep on top of the workload. And these two stories are completely at odds with each other. It's as if we're talking about two different jobs. So that point about a story, it seems to be essential because what one side is telling themselves about what policing is, it bears no relationship to what the other side is telling themselves about what policing is. Yeah, they are two bubbles, aren't they? They talk to themselves largely. Yeah. Here's the thing. When I did rejoin, one of the reasons I rejoined was because this guy called Robert Mark became commissioner. And then started advertising tyres on television, didn't he? That's afterwards. Okay. Um, don't spoil the story. Robert Mark became commissioner. And I remember one of the biggest demonstrations around Vietnam, there were a lot, where they tried to take the American embassy. Now, the British cops were pretty restrained by any international standards. Uh, and their basic line was they would try and hug you to death, really, if they could. They do it with a lot of people and some horses and things like this. Mm -hmm. But you would not get past them. You would not take the American embassy, even if they were thrashed and damaged and the horses. What Robert Mark recognised, you had to have a story around this. Now, I was at this demonstration and one of the guys standing beside me was hospitalised and never came back to work. Mm, he, was, he was held by some Merseyside mouse. We tried to free him and they kicked him in the head and eventually they did for him in, in normal terms. Yes, poor bugger. Yeah, and he was just one of the casualties that day. And Robert Mark's line was, that the media was, 
Look, when the police deal with big events and big public order issues where there's a lot of emotion, they win by appearing to lose. Now, what he meant by that was, we will take some casualties to save symbolic buildings and big things. We will not let things fall, but we will not be forceful in a way that generates a huge upsurge of sympathy for people who are protesting and doing things. Now, you may think that winning by appearing to lose is a pretty poor line, and I have to tell you, the front line at the time would like to win by appearing to win. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been their idea. But the point was, he understood the need to have a story and communicate. A sympathetic narrative. Yeah, and it was one that caught the eye of the public and engaged people, not just left-wing academics in universities, but the broader body politic. And they warmed to it because they understood. And, of course, he drew huge sympathy into the police. Mind you, what Mark did say was, it wasn't so much the officers, which is dreadful, being injured. It was by putting marbles down and effectively crippling one of the horses. Oh, the British public love horses. They love horses. Horses and dogs. Horses and dogs. So the point really is, we do need leadership now with a narrative, a story to tell. Peter Imbert, another commissioner, he used to say to me, and knew Peter well, the way I communicate with the officers is by television and when I'm on radio. You know, trying to do it in the organisation, with an organisation of 35,000, 40,000 people, not possible. The tricky part with that is, nowadays, we have this change in culture. So it strikes me that one of the things that's changed is there's an unwillingness to accept failure and honest mis- what I would consider to be honest mistakes. Mm. So now, if you're winning by appearing to lose, simply the appearance of losing can come in for huge amounts of criticism because yeah. there's no honest mistakes anymore. Everybody's got a cell phone camera, we're videoing the police and we're, we're giving everybody a super hard time for that three seconds where they possibly did something that somebody has decided is yep. slightly excessive yep. in a 30-year career. I just yep. don't know any other professions where you could put a camera on somebody for 30 years and everybody would behave perfectly for that whole period of time. So it's a very different kind of culture. Can that approach survive nowadays? Well, there's an upside, isn't there? As you will know as an evidence-based person, Mr Ratcliffe, that our cameras here and the use of them have been accompanied by a 90% fall in complaints. That's a precipitative fall in That's complaints. incredible. Yeah. That is incredible. And, you know, if you look at brachial studies across the planet, as it were, that trend has prevailed. Now, it's not perfect, because in Australia, where they have almost no complaints, of course, you're not going to see very much. No. But in this kind of environment where there's no tolerance of any failure whatsoever, and when you get a precipitative drop in complaints, it tells you something about the nature of what's happening around policing. So I do think there are some things to compensate. That's one. And, you know, you're right, because I've been reading some of the studies done by people like Mike White and Eileen Marm and other folks who, a lot of people study body-worn cameras. They're starting to see a a general trend in this this area. And that's across multiple different police services in different countries. Yeah. Now, that's the plus side. The minus side on the cameras is, you know, if you do the wrong thing with chokeholds or you shoot somebody, you know, obviously in the back and the rest of it, chances are you will be found out. Yeah. But for the great bulk of people, it's actually showing that, you know what, they're doing a good, reasonable job. But the second bit is I do think part of the story has got to be acceptable failure when you're dealing with human failure as a business. The police actually are in the business already of dealing with human failure. What the best they're ever going to do is recover things a bit. I remember chatting to, uh, on one of the previous podcasts, chatting to Ian Hesketh, if you know Ian, mm. who does, you know, officer wellness. In case nobody calls the police because things are going super. No. 
generally speaking, you're not going to a Bickers Tea Party when you call the police. You know, you caught, things have gone wrong. Yeah. As Egon Bittner said, you know, something's wrong and it needs to be fixed right now. This is one of the things I really loved about Foot Patrol is because once I moved away from Foot Patrol, I only ended up seeing two types of people and they were always stressed. They were either stressed because they'd been the victims of crime or they were stressed because they were the suspects in crime. It's only when I wasn't in a car and I was on foot patrol that I got to meet lots of, and there are many great and wonderful people in the East End of London. Yes. But you don't get to meet them if you're doing, if, if it's response policing. Fashion. Yeah, because you're going from one stress call to another. And nobody's ever at their best. Yeah, on my foot patrol, apart from the dockers and people like the pub landlord who called, they used to call him, and he was a transgender guy, Molly Malone, and he called everybody who came into the pub at six o'clock in the morning off night duty, Molly. Marvellous. <laughs> What I learned because of my area, which was around the old Ripper territory, well, I learned about all the vagrants who lived in churchyards, the guys who had not come out of the war well and who drank meths and things like this. And at first off, I thought they were strange creatures, but then I found out about their stories and I understood them and understood how they were trying to survive. And, you know, you kind of rich patchwork of that East End of London. As you said, you get that from foot. You do not get it by being a detective and you don't get it, I don't think, definitely don't get it from response. No, you don't get it in a car. No, and people who think it's all, always more efficient to put people in cars completely misunderstand the relationship bit between police and the people they're, they're around. The thing that really bothers me in developing a story for the future about policing rather than the past is if the police leaders do not understand their business and what they can do well, their ability to put together a convincing story and a convincing organisation that can operate in this world is remote, to say the least. And you don't think they really know the business anymore? I, I think, here we are in Cambridge University, the sort of course we are running, which is what do we really know that works in policing, in a very business-like way. I mean, the thought that the people who actually run police departments don't necessarily have to do that course, is just astonishing to me. Yeah. I mean... It's mind-blowing. Unless you think people can read a book somewhere that's got all that stuff, and of course they can't. Or they can, by osmosis, drag it up from the ground. Or worse, they think that the job is the same as when they went through the academy in their first years. It could be 30 years ago. Yeah. And it's changed dramatically. I mean, I know to, I, I go and ride alongs as much as I can wherever I am, because you, you really get to see what it's really like. And even in the 20 years I've been in Philadelphia, when I started ride-alongs in Philadelphia, it's changed a lot now. I was out with some transit police just recently. Yeah. Yeah, there are parts of Philadelphia that have changed dramatically in the last uh, 10 years. Yeah. Uh, for the worse, and the policing job there has changed. It's gone from being a crime-fighting role to a social service role. Just trying to keep people alive. Intuition is not enough. We have too many police leaders that rely on intuition. The one thing that saved my sorry ass more than times than I can tell you, particularly operating in big jobs in London and nationally, is because I have tried to avoid making the assumption that my intuition is enough and get situational awareness, whether it's a public order or a terrorism issue or even a patrol issue about what is actually it's happening. really going on, yeah. Find out what's really happening. I mean, they used to have an old statement saying for it, which was in relation to public order and events in the Met. The first thing you do is take the ground. The ground, in this case, is what's actually happening in relation to that issue. Mm -hmm. Don't assume you know the ground. That kind of gap for our senior leadership is, is uh, so fundamental. Because without that, 
whatever plan or narrative you have, you'll have people working on, on yesterday's idea that was probably irrelevant yesterday. So in terms of thinking about moving policing forward then, we need a good narrative and a good story. We do. Some clarity about what the role is, but also an acceptance that there's going to be failure and a realisation that if we don't fund enough things, then failure is going to be a part of the business. I think what we need is an honest conversation about the role of the police and how much the police can actually do well, there's the, the mission creep nowadays has been through the roof. Mental health and behavioural health of the public has become a policing job. It was, I mean, other than the fact that I used to work at Bow Road in the East End London, across the road from the old St Clement's Hospital, which no longer exists, apparently it's luxury apartments. Yes. But the act, but the, There's the, a story there, I'm sure. But the idea of committing people still exists. Yeah, but now has shifted to seeming to be, and I think we're seeing this pretty much worldwide. I'm certainly seeing it in Philadelphia and in many cities in the United States. That's become a policing role. Yeah, well, what we've ended up is, I think, the police as, uh, you know, they used to be last resort, they have become, some people say, first resort. What I do know is people are expecting them, whether it's in relation to mental health, domestic abuse or other things, to expect police to compensate for society. That's way beyond their role as we see in Hong Kong at the moment. You know, the police can do a certain amount of things, but we need to be clear about what they can reasonably do well for us and where we expect those standards high. And we need a clear statement about where they cannot protect us from our own lifestyle and other things. So do you think this has been a leadership failure by accepting too many roles that set the police up for failure to some degree, by taking on too much? You know, I've dealt with the police, the military and our security services. If you go to a meeting, say, to look after the Olympics involving those three bodies, the security service will say things like, Minister, we think these are all the risks. How much risk do you want to absorb? And the military will say, we do these things well. You know, we, we can do a lot of scanning of, of signals and communications and so on, but that's the limit of what we do. And the police say, what would you like us to do? Right. And that's so well-intentioned, but so misconceived. You cannot be in the role of the hero rescuing everything and compensating for society. You just set yourself up for failure. They're going to have to draw some lines around what they do. Now, I do think that needs to be done very carefully. I cannot imagine another agency realistically, for example, taking on something like missing persons. Well, because behind every missing persons is a long tail risk, which you will understand all your sophisticated statistics. I wouldn't go that far, but yeah. Well, there's a tail risk, and, and by is. that, it's a, it's a small percentage, but repeatedly, people who go missing die. And that possibility means... And the that vast majority of cases, most of these end up really well, but there's always going to be that yeah. small group that carry a, a lot of inherent risk for policing. And a lot repeat, and people bemoan the amount of resources to go, to go into it, but what other agency can anticipate the potential worst outcomes and can mobilise everybody and has that bitnotype authority to mobilise lots of other services. So I think one needs to be careful when your mission is Queen's Police Medal to guard my people. You need to set your parameters around it well. But I do think it's quite possible to say we can deal with incidents immediately, but we cannot track people over long periods of time to see what happens to them subsequently because we're not geared for it. We're not resourced for it. And I think the public have some concerns about whether the police should be retaining records of yeah. people over you 20, run into 30 another plus debate. years. You yeah. uh, another debate entirely. Something we, uh, that also that you've said in the past that resonates with me is, and, and I think it's to do with this mission creep, is because the spread so thin, the response policing just becomes what you've termed as schoolboy football. Yes, because we don't have the degree of coordination and communication 
to sort the wheat from the chaff in terms of giving jobs out to response officers. They try and play the game themselves. They run, as it were, in the cars from one end to the other. Wherever the ball goes, which is the crime or the cause, they, go, the they all surround it and scurry around it and the then ball. it moves and they go somewhere else. Now, now, to be fair on them, they to a degree try and organise themselves around incidents and the rest of it. But that's only as good as the best organiser and the most experienced organiser. And as you know, in response policing, quite a lot of the people are the least experienced and the least organised. So you can get whole clusters of people chasing that ball. One of the things that's changed dramatically, the number of people in local policing since 2010 is down in this country more than the rest of policing. I mean, I had a big role in launching something called Neighbourhood Policing. I ran the trial, okay, and it went national, and people liked it a lot locally. That has been eviscerated, it's been scaled right back, but also the number of officers, local officers in response and other things, that's been scaled back, and so the number of calls actually been attended to is reduced. So the number of people available for that everyday patrolling whether it's in cars or on foot, is dramatically down and the public have noticed it. So in one sense, the school by football is a lot thinner than it used to be here. There are no more uh, big quiet men in the East End of London keeping an eye on things. There are no sentinels out there looking stern and convincing with lantern jaws that keep everything just as it should be. For the public, they like to think that there are those kind of people around in a variety of roles. I like to think that there are those kind of people around still. Indeed, who they can reach out to, who, who don't only abseil in when the worst things happen. That's not the story I want to have. Lots of things to think about for the future. Indeed. So Dennis O'Connor, it's been a pleasure. Pleasure to do. Thank you, mate. You've been listening to episode 14 of Reducing Crime, recorded in July 2019 at Cambridge University. You can find more episodes at reducingcrime.com or the usual podcasty places. New episodes are announced on Twitter at underscore reducingcrime. Don't forget the underscore. Be safe and best of luck. <laughs>